Governor, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of The Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and this is where we explore the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of the ag industry. Now, today's episode is about a topic that I think most people in agriculture are somewhat familiar with, but many don't fully understand. And we're talking about commodity groups. As you probably know, the vast majority of farmers sell into a commodity market, which means at least on some level, they are a price taker. So in an environment like that, what option does a farmer have to try to increase the value of the crops they grow long term? Well, this is not a new problem, which is why Congress passed the Agricultural Marketing Agreement Act of 1937 over 80 years ago. This allowed for producer groups to form a marketing order. Growers and handlers of a specific commodity in a certain geography, say California almonds as an example, agree to pay into an organization to help with controls on quality and quantity and expand demand for the product and also conduct research and investment that will help future production. The USDA provides oversight for these programs, but they are completely funded by the producers and industry participants themselves. Growers have to petition to start a new marketing order, and every so many years, they vote on a referendum to continue it. Once voted on by a two-thirds producer majority or higher and approved by the USDA, every producer that falls under the jurisdiction is required to pay into that marketing order. The reason these were formed is when they used to be voluntary, those that didn't pay into them benefited just as much from the value as those that did pay. In addition to these marketing order programs, there are also what are called research and promotion programs, casually referred to as checkoffs. Now, this is a really complicated topic, and I'm sort of forced to oversimplify it a bit to try to capture the essence in this podcast episode. But if you've ever tried to please everyone, you probably know it's impossible. So since every producer is required to pay into these programs, there is inevitably going to be some controversy surrounding them. So I wanted to bring onto the show someone who has firsthand knowledge and experience of working with federal marketing orders and checkoff programs to try to help us start to understand their important role and also some of these nuances that are involved. I found the ideal guest for this in Darren Williams. Uh, Darren is the Senior Director of Global Communications at the Almond Board of California. He has worked in agricultural communications for over 30 years now, and much of that with these producer-led commodity groups, including almonds, beef, apples, dairy, and pork, just to name a few. Now, really, this episode could have been three different interesting episodes, but in my overly ambitious ways, I'm trying to condense it down into one. I invited him onto the show to talk about his experiences working with these producer groups, including his current role at the Almond Board of California, and his previous role, which was with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, which is actually a contractor to the Beef Checkoff Program. A little bit of extra nuance there, but we cover much more than that in the episode, including almonds, which have been one of the fastest growing crops in the country, and the leadership the Almond Board of California has taken to set ambitious goals for the industry. By 2025 in areas such as water, dust, waste, and pest management. Also, we talk about the nuances of federal marketing order programs and checkoff programs and lessons he's learned about communicating about agriculture, both to producer groups and to the public. Now, whether you're a farmer, ag professional, investor, or just generally interested in agriculture, I think you're going to find something here that will be worth your while. As a bonus at the end of the episode, also, we have a founder spotlight of a company that has leveraged a relationship with an industry group 
to grow their company. That's Peter Schott of Genesis Feed Technologies. So make sure you stay tuned for that as well. But here we go. We're going to begin our episode here with Darren Williams sharing some background on his career. I'm a native of Kansan and followed Bob Dole, senator from Kansas for many years, out to Washington, D.C. after college graduation to work on his 1988 presidential campaign, which was, if you think about it, the last presidential campaign before the Internet, of course, well before social media. And I did that for two years. We fell short of the White House, but I ended up staying in Washington, D.C., went to work for a small agricultural public affairs firm in Washington called Agri-Washington and worked for a variety of food and agricultural trade organizations there. One of those was the Apple Processors Association. And I was there in 1989 when the Alar crisis happened in the Apple industry. And for those of you who aren't familiar with that, it was really one of the first orchestrated special interest group attacks on the food industry, uh, calling into question the safety of apples and apple juice and applesauce due to a chemical called Alar, a plant growth regulator that was sprayed on on apple trees to hold the apples on the tree longer. And I kind of launched my career in the issues management, crisis management world within food and agriculture. After 10 years staying in Washington for 10 years at Agri-Washington, my wife and I moved home to Kansas City and I went to work for Fleischman Hillard International Communications in Kansas City. It was the food and agribusiness division of that international communications firm. That's when I really got heavily involved in the beef industry and working on a challenge in the industry at the time in the mid-1990s, which was E. coli. E. coli 0157H7 had burst onto the scene with the -the jack-in-the-box outbreak in 1993 and then the Hudson Foods recall in 1995 that uh, really had the industry reeling. What are we going to do about this pathogenic bacteria that's made its way into our product and uh, causing serious illness and death? And I worked with the industry on that through the Beef Industry Food Safety Council while I was at Fleischmann Hillard and also did some work for dairy checkoff and the pork checkoff at that time and got a lot of experience in that area. And then uh, eventually went and uh, after 10 years at Fleischman Hiller, joined the beef industry full-time at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, a contractor to the beef checkoff and specialized in issues and crisis management there. Launched an advocacy program with the advent of social media and uh, Facebook and Twitter. We launched the Masters of Beef Advocacy Program to train farmers and ranchers to be their own advocates. Uh, It was kind of a novel concept at the time that's now commonly accepted, I think, (laughs) commonplace for farmers and ranchers to be involved and and active in social media and telling their own story. And then uh, just two years ago, I had the opportunity to uh, take a position here with the Almond Board of California and work for one of the fastest growing commodities in the country. Uh, We just had an estimate coming out that we're going to hit 3 billion pounds of uh, almonds this year all grown in California. The only commercial almond production is in California, in the United States, and uh, we grow 80% of the world's almonds here and have become the number one crop by acreage, the number one specialty crop export in the United States, and the number one ag export for the state of California. So it's an exciting time to be involved in the almond industry, and uh, that's where I find myself today. Right. And maybe it's a good segue to talk about this, just the role of the Almond Board of California for the almond industry and and maybe a a general insight into sort of how commodities groups work and what their role is for the growers. Well, in general, marketing orders were started to help farmers get together and and market their commodity. It was due to low prices that farmers were facing. and, And the Almond Board of California was started in 1950. 
And the primary role at that time was really in things like quality controls and quantity controls. Really, it was actually called the Almond Control Board or ACB at the time, not ABC. And that's really why federal marketing orders exist to facilitate commerce within, you know, with a particular commodity to, to have standards in place and uh, ensure that you're putting out a quality product into the marketplace. It really wasn't until the 1970s that it became the Almond Board of California and the focus really shifted. We still do all of the control mechanisms of the old control board, but uh, where marketing became the number one focus. Uh, it was becoming increasingly apparent that we needed a marketing program to market this commodity that was growing and, you know, people producing more and more pounds every year. And so the Almond Board of California stepped in and, and has filled that role and, and really has now developed a very robust global market. We sell almonds to more than 100 countries around the world. About 70% of the almonds grown in California are exported. India and China and Europe are really our three largest market areas. And, uh, and almond growers in California depend heavily on those markets in order to sell their product at a price, you know, that uh, they can be profitable. And so in addition to kind of positioning almonds in a way where, you know, you continue to grow the demand base, I know that's sort of interconnected with programs that you offer to the growers themselves. So there's a consumer facing element and then a growers facing element. And what's been interesting to me as I've learned about commodity groups is sort of the interrelationship between the two, like a topic like sustainability. Consumers want to know that their product is more sustainable. And so in turn, you've got to connect what sustainability practices are happening at the grower level to the consumer's interest in that sustainability. So can you talk about more of those maybe grower facing programs and how the two interrelate? Sure. It's a big part of what we do at the Almond Board is working with growers to adopt new practices in how we grow almonds. Our vision at the Almond Board of California is to make life better by what we grow and how we grow. And that how we grow part really is critical because that's what consumers are interested in today. Where does my food come from? What chemicals are applied in the process of growing that food? Or what impact does it have on the environment? You know, what do you call that sustainability, environmental stewardship, whatever term you want to use. That's, you know, what consumers are interested in when it comes to their food. And I think with coronavirus, we're seeing even more interest in, you know, how our food is grown and our own health and safety and, and what we put in our bodies. So I don't expect that to go away. And in our fact, I think sustainability will continue to grow in importance with the consumer. And so what does that mean for growers? Well, you know, I think for a long time, farmers and ranchers, you know, nobody really asked many questions about what happens down on the farm. And maybe farmers and ranchers kind of like that, being typically fiercely independent people, don't like people telling them what to do. And so when consumers first started asking questions, I think farmers and ranchers got defensive and said, well, wait a minute, you're, you know, what are you getting all involved in my business for? I'm the expert here. I know what I'm doing. So sustainability kind of sounds like people on the outside coming in and, and trying to tell us what to do. We've taken a different approach at the Almond Board of California. And we've said, you know what, sustainability is what we do and we're going to take credit for it. And we're going to go out there and we're going to continuously improve our practices to address consumer concerns about things like water use. We've improved water use efficiency more than 30% over the last 20 years. Not necessarily because consumers were asking for it or concerned about it 20 years ago, but just because it's the right thing to do. It makes good sense to use your resources wisely. And, uh, and water is a, is a precious resource, as we all know, and certainly in California, the impacts our ability to grow crops or not grow food here. 
but now with the Almond Orchard 2025 goals that we launched two years ago, we have said to consumers, we're going to tell you exactly where we're going to go, where we're going with water use, where we're going with pesticide use, where we're going with everything that we grow in the orchard and making sure it's put to the best and most valuable use for the grower. And then also an issue that's really just local to us here in the Central Valley is dust and, and reducing our dust during harvest because harvest of any crop can be a dusty process, and that's also true for almonds. And so by setting those goals and inviting consumers along on that journey, we're being very transparent and saying, yes, we are working to improve. And to me, that's the story of American agriculture. We've been working to improve since the very beginning of cultivating crops, and we continue to do that. And so we work with growers to do the research, to test out new ways of growing almonds and and make sure that we've really got the scientific basis for something like whole orchard recycling, which is something we're working on now. At the end of the orchard's life, can we grind up those trees completely into mulch and completely recycle them back in to the ground to improve soil health? Now, over research over 10 years, we've, we've been able to show at UC Davis that that does indeed work and that does indeed have benefits for the grower, but there are some potential downsides you have to manage. So now we're getting ready to talk to growers about that, but it takes a long time to really validate. And that's what a lot of what the Almond Board does is we fund research and production techniques. We validate techniques that work and, and if it's uh, beneficial and cost effective and can help improve the return on investment for the grower, we roll it out to the industry and make sure everybody knows about it. Well, I want to talk a little bit kind of a behind the scenes on federal marketing order. I know you said you can't be involved in influencing policy in any way, but what other types of restrictions, because the growers are mandated to pay into the marketing order, what restrictions or oversight do you have from USDA as a result? So both marketing orders and checkoffs are overseen by the Department of Agriculture and the Agricultural Marketing Service in particular. And because they are established by legislation and overseen by the, the federal government, there are a number of restrictions. And first and foremost, absolutely forbidden is to do any kind of lobbying work. So we can't take checkoff dollars, you can't take assessment dollars from a marketing order and go to Washington, D.C. and lobby on the farm bill. I uh, just can't do that. That's why you have membership-based organizations like the National Cattlemen's Association, Cattlemen's Beef Association, or in our industry, we have the Almond Alliance of California that is a membership-based organization that can go do that work in Sacramento and in Washington, D.C. But another thing that we're forbidden from doing is disparaging other commodities. And to me, that's a really important thing that's in the legislation for any of the checkoffs or the federal marketing orders. And uh, so, we, you know, we can't go out while marketing almonds and try to make any claims that you, you shouldn't drink dairy milk, for example, uh, for any reason. We can't be disparaging to dairy, and we certainly wouldn't want to do that. We've got a lot of almond growers that also have cows, beef cows and dairy cows. You know, we're all in this together in American agriculture. That's one of the things working for a number of different commodities throughout my career and having seen a number of different viewpoints, both plant and animal-based uh, commodities. We have to work on this together, and whether it's addressing issues of consumer perception about how we grow food, or whether it's working together on issues like sustainability. The thing about coming to almonds that was interesting for me is when I was at beef, I used to tell the story many times about how beef cattle really are upcyclers. They take leftovers from food production for human consumption. When we grow plants for human consumption, 
actually, we typically eat a very small part of the plant. We eat the berry, the nut, the seed, but there's all the rest of the plant, the stalks and the leaves and everything, you know, like with corn, that cattle eat. When we talk about corn-fed beef, we're not just talking about the, the kernels. <laughs> they, they eat the entire plant, right? And a lot of people don't understand that. Well, almond holes have traditionally been fed to dairy cattle here in California. They end up in dairy cattle feed. Almond holes are a, a good source of sugars. Almonds are a fruit. And so the hole is the outer fruity, fleshy part, just like a peach. Uh, they're a stone fruit. But we don't eat that fruit because it's kind of bitter and woody. There's a lot of fiber in it. <laughs> uh, might be good for us, but it's definitely good for dairy cattle. And we produce twice as many holes every year as we do nuts. When I said we're going to have a crop, a 3 billion pound crop this year, according to National Ag Statistics Service estimates, that means we're going to have 6 billion pounds of almond holes. And if we didn't have dairy cattle to feed those holes to, they'd end up in a landfill. You know, so cattle play a critical role there in helping the almond industry be more sustainable. And I used to tell that story for the, from the beef side, and now I tell it from the almond side, but it's the same story. And it's in a truly sustainable food production system, plants and animals work together to make the best use of resources. And, and ruminant animals like cattle play a critical role in a sustainable food system. We couldn't have a completely sustainable plant-based food system, in my opinion. Yeah, I think there's probably a water story there too, isn't there? I mean, the same drop of water that's being used to produce those holes is going to the cattle. And so sometimes those get double counted. Here's how much water it takes to produce milk. Here's how much water it takes to produce almonds. But in some cases, it's the same water. And I mean... Yeah. You know, back during the drought in 2014, 2015, uh, I was sitting in Denver working for the beef industry and kept hearing from our colleagues in here in California that we, they were getting killed on the water issue. You know, we, for years, had addressed the, the question of how many gallons of water does it take to produce a pound of beef? And, and to your point, you know, people just don't think that through and think about what does that really mean, use that water to produce a pound of beef? I mean, it, it's used, yes, it's consumed by the animal or it's used to grow a crop, but then it returns to the water cycle, right? And it's there to nourish another crop or to nourish another animal. It moves around. It doesn't always stay consistently always in the same place. And we were facing drought in California because we just weren't getting the water here where we needed it. And we don't have enough above ground surface storage here because the state hasn't planned adequately to have enough water storage uh, above ground. So, yeah, as we work on solutions there and find ways to improve our water use efficiency, we you know, want to remind people that, yes, the, the tree uses the water to grow, but then that water either evapotranspirates into the air or the irrigation systems, you know, put it back down into the ground and it filters back down into the groundwater. It's not going away. You know, it's moving around and, and being used to grow other crops and to nourish animals. Yeah, so we're all in this together, you know, and I think the, the last thing we want to do is point the finger at another commodity or another group within agriculture. We've got to work together on solutions for the benefit of all. And does the USDA, do they handle the actual making sure that the money is collected and then distributed or do the individual groups do that themselves? The individual groups really do that themselves, but the process is outlined in, for example, with the beef checkoff, it's outlined in the act and order. A lot of people don't realize that the state beef councils actually collect the dollar uh, for the beef checkoff. So the beef checkoff is $1 per head per animal each time that animal changes hands. So if the cow-calf guy sells it to the feed yard, that's a dollar. When the feed yard sells it to the packer, that's another dollar. On average, about two and a half 
at least when I was there a couple of years ago, two and a half dollars per animal is collected through the beef checkoff. But that's collected by the state, say the Oklahoma Beef Council, and they keep 50 cents and then they send 50 cents on to the Cattlemen's Beef Board, which is the national organization. Cattlemen's Beef Board is appointed by the Secretary of Agriculture to then oversee that money and that investment in a national program. And then the states can either use their 50 cents within their state or in some cases, places like Nebraska, where you have more cattle than people, they will actually reinvest some of their 50 cents in the national program through the Federation of State Beef Council. So a little bit complicated structure there. You have the Cattlemen's Beef Board, which is really overseeing oversight and administration. Then you have the states collecting the dollars and they send 50 cents into the Beef Board. But then the Beef Board contracts out with organizations like the National Cattlemen's Beef Association to do programs. NCBA does the marketing program, issues and crisis management program, the safety research, nutrition research, a wide variety of programs, all as a contractor to the beef checkoff. Whereas the Almond Board itself is a single entity. So the Almond Board collects the assessment, which is three cents per pound of edible almond nut meats. I think it's funny that people don't want us to call it almond milk, and then maybe don't know that forever the nut has been called nut meat. So we use the term meat and milk interchangeably, both in plants and in animal agriculture. Anyway, per pound. So if we have 3 billion pounds this year and 3 cents per pound, do the math. And that's, that's our budget uh, at the Almond Board of California. And the Almond Board of California then also does all of the programming work we do. We don't contract that out. Except, you know, we do work with a variety, whether it's public relations firms, marketing firms, et cetera. But uh, we do all the work with our own staff. That's a big difference. And the structure within beef and with dairy as well can be pretty complicated and can be kind of confusing for producers. So uh, I'll be honest, it's kind of nice to to not have to deal with uh, some of those questions about where the money's all going because it's a little clearer here. But of course, one of the big issues uh, with the beef checkoff is whether or not a policy organization like the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, which has a membership side and does lobbying in Washington, should also be a checkoff contractor and whether that can actually be done and prohibit checkoff dollars from going into lobbying efforts. And I can tell you for after working 11 years at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, that's taken very seriously and that no checkoff dollars are ever funneled over to the policy side of the organization. It's very strict accounting rules, very strict accounting system that we as staff members had to abide by. But the perception is out there that that money crosses over and uh, somehow is used to support uh, perhaps lobbying on an issue that some ranchers might oppose, like mandatory country of origin labeling. Or in this case, there are some producers who favor mandatory country of origin labeling and the National Cattlemen's Beef Association officially opposes it. But the checkoff doesn't get involved in that. And again, you can say that till you're blue in the face and there's just some people aren't going to believe you. And if you're a producer and you want to have more say in what the checkoff does with the money that you're forced to pay, what options do you have to kind of get involved and, and have your voice heard? Well, all of these organizations are led by the producers of the commodities themselves. They're started by the producers of the commodities. They're led by volunteer boards and committees. When I went to work for the National Academy's Beef Association, I was so impressed with the level of commitment of the producers who were involved at the committee level. And um, in the early days, my programs went through the public relations subcommittee. But 
You know, these were people volunteering their time to come together and make decisions about what's the best way to invest the money to get the best return for the producer paying the dollar. We just saw where uh, the latest study on return on investment in the for the beef checkoff is showing $11.91 return per dollar invested. That's a pretty darn good return on investment. And it's those producers really that are making those decisions, not staff members. Staff members come forward with ideas. The way it works in the beef industry is you have a number of contractors to the beef checkoff. Those contractors all come in with proposals every year to the beef promotion operating committee. And uh, the beef promotion operating committee, again, made up of producers, volunteers, who are there to represent the folks back in their state and uh, make decisions on what's the best use of those dollars. And then those decisions are made by the producers and then the staff go to implement those programs only if approved. Uh, So these really are producer-driven organizations. And if you don't like the way your producer-driven organization is spending your money, then you need to get involved. And the best way to get started is to get involved in the committee. And you can attend committee meetings. You don't necessarily have to be a committee member to get involved and have a voice and show up at the meetings. And the same goes for the Almond Board of California or any of these producer organizations. We have volunteer committees who are dedicated, passionate people in the industry who want to make a difference. And they want to have a say in the investments that we make. And we have a lot of great discussions at committee meetings. I have a global communications committee. We have a global marketing committee. We have a research committee, you know, that make the decisions about all of the investments. And they ask tough questions in our committee meetings about what we're going to do with that money. And uh, we have to be on our toes and have good plans in place. And that's one of the things I honestly love about working for commodity boards. I've had the opportunity to work for trade associations, for co-ops, and for commodity boards throughout my career. And the one thing they all have in common is being led by the people of the industry and the people in the industry. To be a staff member and serve farmers and ranchers has been just a very rewarding career. That's cool. Well, you, you talked earlier, it's something that stuck with me is you said early on in your career, you were on uh, Bob Dole's presidential campaign, which is the last one before the internet. So in your career in communications and specifically in agriculture, what's changed in the way you have to approach communications now in the, in the age of social media versus before the internet? Well, if you take you know, the Alar crisis in 1989, for example, that I started off talking about, you had a group called the Natural Resources Defense Council that came out with a study saying 1,500 children a year were going to get cancer from consuming apple products because of the plant growth rate that was used in the apple industry called Alar. Now, we've all seen this kind of science, right? You jack the dose rate up to 500 times the level that it would be, you know, that we as consumers would ever be exposed to that compound in laboratory studies using rats. And then you come up with a finding that this causes tumors in the livers of rats. And then you extrapolate that out to say 1500 children are going to get cancer every year. When in fact, there was never actually any evidence that that was true or that that was actually happening. So how did we respond to that? Well, our only choice really was mass media. You know, I've been beating my head against that wall for 30 years trying to get the word out through reporters and through that filter. And when it comes to the issues like food safety, they're just very skeptical of industry sources. You know, I think that is one critical role that organizations like checkoffs and marketing orders can play is in making sure we're getting out accurate information in a situation like that. Whereas 
We are not an individual company brand that has that at stake. And so we're, we're representing the entire industry and can speak for the entire industry. Yeah, so really, we didn't have a direct conduit to the consumer. I mean, you could either buy advertising or you could try to impact the coverage through the media. And with the advent of social media and really that became the genesis for the Masters of Beef Advocacy Program was now we have the opportunity for anybody, a farmer in Sydney, Nebraska or Sydney, Montana or Fremont, Nebraska can, there's probably a Sydney, Nebraska as well, but anyway, <laughs> any, but any, my point is any farmer anywhere can communicate directly to a consumer in New York City or Los Angeles with this very powerful tool. At the same time, it's a very powerful tool to spread misinformation and misleading information that couldn't be more obvious in today's environment. There are times where I long for the good old days of just working with a reporter who has an editor and a fact checker, you know, that's really going to do the work to make sure the story is as accurate as possible because there's no editors and fact checkers on the internet. And so anybody can put out any information that's really hard to know what's real and what's not. In many ways, it's, it's given us a new conduit to communicate directly to consumers, but it's also given a lot of other people a conduit to communicate directly to consumers on the other side of the story, so we have to work harder. Well, I know we're coming up on the time I've asked of you here, but, but one other question. I know you were instrumental in starting the, the Masters of Beef Advocacy Program at NCBA. I think you mentioned it earlier. I think probably when you started that, the big barrier to producers telling their story online was kind of knowing how. Uh, it seems like maybe today in 2020, the barrier isn't knowing how, but I would argue that there still probably isn't enough producers out there sharing, you know, documenting their own journey and, and being transparent with what they're doing. I don't think it's because they don't want to be transparent. And I don't think it's because they don't know how. I'm just curious your take on what you think the biggest obstacle is or barrier is to more producers spreading those messages online. Well, I think the state of social media today is such that if you go out there and put yourself out there and talk about what you do, to raise animals in an ethical way and in a way that produces a high quality and safe food, you're vulnerable to attack. And there are people who will come after you, whether it's uh, animal rights activists or climate change activists or whoever it may be. And disturbingly, more and more other farmers and ranchers attacking each other. And maybe if there's one theme I would like to <laughs> round this out on is that we've got to stop doing that. We have got to stop attacking each other. We have got to work together as farmers and ranchers. And there's a lot of different ways to grow almonds. There's a lot of different ways to grow cattle. There's no one right way of doing it. And if you're out there espousing your way is the only way, you need to maybe stop and listen and, and listen to others and get other viewpoints for a while. In doing trainings all across the country for, with the Masters of Beef Advocacy Program for 11 years, one of the things I taught Tim was, and like to say over and over, is that God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. And that was so we could listen twice as much as we talk. You know, we need to listen more to each other and to other viewpoints and respect other viewpoints and then go about our business. And if we can't move beyond this in social media, I'm, I'm becoming more and more concerned that it's not a good conduit for us to tell our story because it's just so divisive. And if consumers out there see two cattlemen fighting with each other in social media over what's the best way to do something or whether or not, you know, GMOs are safe or whatever the issue might be, that's just going to leave them in a place of confusion and 
they're not going to know what to believe. But if they see us working together and, and trying to solve the issues and things that they're concerned about, they develop trust in the industries. And, and I think trust is, is a critical issue for farmers and ranchers. In many cases, we've lost it and we need to regain it with consumers and, and let them know we really do have their best interests at heart when we make decisions about how we're going to grow their food, because we're also going to be putting it on our own dinner tables. So we have a lot of challenges, but I think American agriculture has risen to the challenge many, many times over in our country's history, and to the challenge to feed more people, to feed people more efficiently uh, at a lower cost. That's been the goal for many, many years in American agriculture, and maybe the goal shifts a little bit now to how do we do that and also make sure we're protecting our planet for future generations, but I think we can rise to that challenge as well. Great. Darren, thank you so much. That last point was a great point, Dan. I've been thinking a lot about lately about, you know, for better or worse, truth has become somewhat ambiguous. And when when that's the case, the only thing you have to fall back on is trust. And so what are we doing to build trust? Uh, Obviously, we want to be truthful as well. But when people can't trust anything as truth, they only have trust left. So (laughs) great point to end on. Thank you so much for time today. I really appreciate this. Well, thanks for the conversation. I enjoyed it. And it's, it's great to be able to talk about what I do because I love what I do. Big thank you to Darren Williams for being on the show. Now, as you probably could tell, there's a ton of nuance to these programs and they're extremely important to the future of agriculture. So I was happy to get to highlight some of the activity here on this show. One of the things that Darren and I talked about that actually didn't end up making it into the final edit there was the ability for startups to work with producer groups as they develop their technology and strive to find product market fit. I thought this would be a good opportunity for me to include a startup spotlight in this episode that has formed a beneficial partnership with an industry group. Peter Schott, who was a guest on this podcast way back in episode 60, has since co-founded Genesis Feed Technologies. His company's trajectory has benefited greatly from working with the United Soybean Export Council. Now, they're not a checkoff, but it's led in part by the United Soybean Board, which is, of course, the soybean checkoff. Peter shared about his company and the work he's doing with USEC at our most recent FOA community pitch event. First, though, he explains what Genesis Feed Technologies does. Uh, The non-technical thing, what we do is we make soybeans look really good. on the more technical side, we um, bring nutritional value out for feed ingredients and show the economics of that so people can make uh, better buying decisions. So uh, they've been buying and trading uh, commodities like corn and soybean meal and that type of thing on a price and protein basis for as long as anyone can remember, but they use it for the energy and the amino acids, which doesn't sound very exciting unless you're a nutritionist. If you're an owner of a business and you find out you can save a lot of money on your feed or make a lot of money um, in your production, that gets more exciting for people. And so that's on one level, what we do is um, help people on that side of it. Our aim with that is to um, change the conversation around how these ingredients are valued and how they're potentially traded. And down the road with that um, benefits back to the farmers like my dad and brother who farm corn and soybeans about two hours from where I'm sitting right now in sunny Fargo, North Dakota. If you're not in the commodity trade, it's important to note here that a commodity like soybeans is generally traded based on certain grade factors, but those grade factors don't provide a nutritionist or an end user of the product with a precise measurement of the factors that are actually most important to them. About a year and a half ago, we stumbled on um, 
a real need to reveal these economic advantages of ingredients based on the nutrition quality. There's a real reactive mentality in the industry where the traders are looking to buy something for the cheapest price, and then the nutritionists get it, and they now they do analysis and say, oh, it's got these qualities and formulate around that. And they're just stuck in that reactive mentality, whereas our software puts that nutrition data in the hands of a purchasing person so they can make buying decisions. Peter's vision is to take a commodity like soybean from one-dimensional to being accurately valued for its nutrient density. If you go to the store to buy a protein bar, and they've got like 100 different kinds of protein bars, and they're all kinds of different prices, you would have to sit there and calculate out, you know, the protein and the fat and the, you know, electrolytes or whatever other things you're trying to get out of those protein bars to say, which one's the best thing for your buck? And so you might have two protein bars that look exactly the same, but one of them is going to have more protein, more electrolytes or more or whatever. And that's what our software shows is that the soybean meal from the U.S. has more amino acids, it has more energy. And so it brings those things into a feed that you don't have to replace synthetically with, with other things. And you also have to use less of it. You know, if you can get all your needs out of, you know, 800 tons versus 1,000 tons, wouldn't you want to buy 200 tons less to, to, get, to get there? I mean, you're going you're gonna to save money with that. Now, how does this connect to today's episode? Well, Peter got connected to the U.S. Soybean Export Council, who are interested in marketing the true value of U.S. soybeans around the world. So their mission aligns really closely with the Genesis solution. We're working really closely with the Soybean Export Council. Uh, they're using our platform to market uh, U.S. soy all around the world right now. So on a given day, I'm talking to people in Ecuador, uh, Nepal, China, Indonesia. Imagine if Peter had to cold call all these potential customers around the world. It would be much more difficult, and his solution, which will likely help U.S. soybean growers, might never see market penetration. Hence, I think this is an interesting strategy that more ag tech startups ought to consider. I mean, it's been great for us to distribute our platform around the world, and we get to sit on the shoulders of a internationally recognized and respected name. It's uh, absolutely huge <laughs> for us. So um, I was going to raise money to try to do the same thing. And we end up getting contract revenue to do that with a group that's actively doing that. And they're not selling our platform for us, but it's a benefit for them to use it. And so people are seeing it and starting to ask questions. So yeah, if, if you can do that and you can build a relationship, I would say start by getting to know some of the regional representatives in, in your area for those types of groups. Um, look for ways you could maybe contribute to some of the conferences and seminars. If you got a webinar idea or that type of thing, you can do just to add value on that side of it. Um, but yeah, start small, try to, try to get to know them, contribute to maybe webinar or that type of thing and, and build a relationship that way. So if you're out there trying to grow an ag tech company, how can you forge relationships with producer groups that might help both of you achieve common goals? I don't know of a lot of other startups out there doing this as effectively as Peter has done, but I think it's a worthwhile approach to consider. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for sharing the time with me. What do you think of this new format of having a featured guest explore topic then a startup spotlight that relates to the topic itself? I'm going to try a few more episodes like this, but uh, would certainly love your feedback on them. In the meantime, I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.